magic is real. It's contained within an app. Put your feet up and watch Peking Duck appear with just a tap. Magic is pizza tacos. Savoy fish and chips. Shish kebab. And spicy crispy chicken strips. Download the Just Eat app and order food for delivery. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. It's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. Last week, our veteran host did a little bit of ranting to Richard Bradbury because he knows I wouldn't have let him get away with that nonsense. This week, I'm back and I'm holding Culture Pop's Matt Armitage to task. He's the one who wants us to be optimistic about science. So... Matt, explain to us, Matt, why we can't cure the common cold. Hey, Jeff, there's no need to bully me. Um, (laughs) And I know where you were last week. You were off with Elon Musk. You were planning your fake VR version of the Mars landings, and you were building Lego versions of his damn big rocket or whatever (laughs) he calls it. But no, you're you're right. There, there's a huge number of common and everyday things that science hasn't discovered yet, or simply can't explain. Mm. Um, and yes, we can talk about the the cold. Um, but let's not forget, though, as I was talking about last week with Richard when I went off on my rant, um, <laughs> science really is the pursuit of knowledge. It's not a crystal ball. Um, scientists are just people who are working with information. They don't necessarily have all the answers and we can't really expect them to have the answers. It doesn't mean we won't have answers in the future. It's just the case that, you know, we haven't got them today Mm. and we're probably not going to have them tomorrow either. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the the disparity because sometimes things are a lot more complicated than they might appear from the outside. Um, Often when we make discoveries, you know, we're really stumbling on something. It's intuitive. It's possibly even accidental. So it can take a long while for knowledge to catch up and explain what we can see and hear and touch. Mm, And you're going to say, man discovering fire again, aren't you? I was until you burst my bubble. Um, Okay, I'll broaden my options and I'll (laughs) offer you something else instead. Hang on. Um, Okay, the bicycle, the humble bicycle. I imagine that um, you and most of our readers can ride a bike, Mm -hmm. right? It's a pretty simple process. You get on it, you pedal a bit. But why does the bike stay up with your plump behind on the saddle? Oh, it's just balance, right? Stability, balance. So, you know, you have, you've, you've, you've got to balance it out. If you, if you let go of the bicycle, it would drop, it would fall. But if you sit on it and you, you have a, you know, you've got like a balancer, uh, an inbuilt human balancer, it, it, it stays upright. So I could summarize that as you don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> we've all observed bikes. If you push a bike away from you, it will keep going in a oh, yeah. pretty much straight line until it runs out of momentum. And then, like you said, it'll crash in a heap. When we're on board, yes, we pedal. We give it that momentum to keep going and we can steer it out of the, the way of obstacles. But scientists can't actually agree why it works. Huh. The consensus of opinion until the 1970s was that cycles observed something called the gyroscopic effect. Mm-hmm. The theory holds that it's the spinning wheel, like you were saying, the momentum that holds the the bike upright. But that was actually disproven in the 1970s when it was demonstrated that you could fit one wheel to rotate in the other direction and the bike would still stay upright. So basically that gyroscopic effect was cancelled out, but the bike still stays upright. So then we switch to another theory that they're calling the caster effect. Which is like the shopping trolley. Yeah, except it turns out 
that the followers of that theory were all off their trolleys as well. <laughs> um, the idea for the caster effect is that the wheel actually touches the ground behind the steering axis. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the forks mm-hmm. of a bike, there's a bit of a curve. Mm-hmm. If you follow the line or the curve, that will actually intersect with the ground ahead of where the wheel touches the ground. So that supposedly was the steering axis, the force that allowed the bike to stand upright. And that sort of makes sense. So what's wrong with that theory? Well, nothing apart from the fact it isn't true. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, through some nifty engineering work, um, teams at Cornell and other universities built bikes that had no gyroscopic effect and no caster effect. And what do you think they did? No gyroscope effect? No, Probably it fell? It br- no. They no? stayed upright, huh. which means that today a skill that a very young child can master in a few hours completely eludes a science community that has invented (laughs) hadron colliders and nanobots and has a pretty good idea of what goes on inside a black hole. Does it matter how a bicycle works? No, in a sense it doesn't because, you know, we can see it, we can touch it, we can ride it, it's real, it's there in front of us. It's also why the best bike designers are often people who have a lot of experience in terms of cycling rather than, you know, an advanced astrophysics degree because it's actually about trial and error mm. because the scientific principles we can't agree on. We keep reinventing them. Um, and that's not to belittle the bike. Um, figures I found on the net, which is always reliable, um, <laughs> suggest that we make around three times as many bikes a year as we do cars. Oh. And a good bike can last you decades because, you know, they're sturdy, they're yeah. robust, they're mm. mechanically simple. Uh, you can still find those um, 1940s postal bikes in junk shops in Malaysia. And after a bit of TLC, those things work mm. perfectly, perfectly fine. Um, and definitely the bike is going to be my transport of choice for the post-apocalypse as long as there's no zombies Um, (laughs) but as we move on to the common cold if something as ubiquitous as the bike and there are thousands uh, sorry hundreds of millions of bikes on the world's roads if Mm. something as simple as that eludes us then i don't think it's that much of a surprise why we can't cure the cold which i have to say why are colds so common well that's something that the uh, good folks who research colds have been battling with for years and years the cold is common because it happens a lot. So adults on average get up to two to three colds per year. Kids can get as many as eight to ten. Mm. And by and large, it's no big deal. Yeah. Um, again, figures I found on the net um, suggest that we uh, lose an average of one day per person, uh, whether it's work or school, every time we come down with a cold. So while the cold is common, the cold virus is actually anything but. Uh, so I'm, I'm really only going to scratch the topic today. If you want to check out more, there's a, a really interesting article on The Guardian called Why Can't We Cure the Common Cold by Nicola Davison. Um, so mm. you can go over and find that. I'll, I'll ask the question in a different way. Why is the cold so uncommon? Largely because the thing we think of as one disease is a lot of different strains. So... You know, we're we're used to talking about the various strains of flu, um, swine flu, bird Mm. flu, um, but they're nothing compared to the sheer simplicity and abundance of cold viruses. With colds, there are actually seven main types. There's the rhinovirus, there's the coronavirus, uh, influenza, um, para-influenza, adenovirus, um, respiratory syncytial virus, which is known as RSV, 
But the last one, metanumovirus, we actually only identified that in 2001. So our knowledge of what a cold is is not constant. Even that is constantly evolving. Mm. And between those seven types of virus, there are actually more than 200 different subviruses. So when you get a cold, you don't have one disease. You have one of 200 200. diseases. Yeah. Um, So of these subviruses or serotypes as they're known – there are more than 160 strains of rhinovirus alone, and that's the one that's responsible for up to three-quarters of the colds in adults. And each of them targets the body in a different way. So the symptoms we feel may be similar, but the way they attack us and the way they invade our body is very, very different, which makes them very hard to prevent and very hard to treat. But we must know the basics, like how colds spread. Even there, the cold virus is a, a slippery devil. Um, paraphrasing from the, the Guardian, um, back at, in 1984, researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, they tried to figure out you know, the best ways to, to catch a cold. So they infected volunteers with a, a cold virus. Well, no, I mean, you know, Poor in the guys. name of Siren. Um, and they instructed them to kiss healthy people on the mouth for at least one minute. Mm. So... You've got 16 healthy volunteers kissed by people with colds. Only one person developed <laughs> an infection. Yeah, exactly. So from 1946 until 1990, the UK actually had a research institute called the Common Cold Unit, which looked into um, ways of catching colds and curing colds. And over that 45 years, they actually used more than 20,000 people wow. as guinea pigs uh, for testing the cold in the name of science. And again, they found that a lot of the um, the tales about how you catch colds are simply not true. Um, one of the early experiments they did was giving people a hot bath, and then afterwards they made them stand dripping wet Oof. and shivering wow. in a cold corridor for 30 minutes. And this is the UK, so it was probably <laughs> wow. you know, it was fairly nippy. Um, and even after they were allowed to get dressed, they had to wear wet socks oh, for a few hours after that. Torture. Yeah, I know. Whoever comes up with these things, <laughs> I can't imagine. Um, that would be a job for me. Um, I mean, they, they experienced a, a drop in body temperature, obviously, because you've made them stand naked in a cold corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't develop any more colds than a group of vol- volunteers who had been sitting in the, the dry and the warm. Mm. So a lot of the old wives' tales about the cold and how you get it and wrapping up warm and staying away from drafts and all this kind of stuff. Simply not true. Mm, well, we're talking about why we can't cure the common cold with Culture Pop's Matt Armitage and we'll be right back with more Matt's Planning BFM 89.9. Barry fronts Motown, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. And we're back with uh, Culture Pop's Matt Armitage with another episode of Matt's Planning. And this time around, it's why we can't cure the common cold. So, Matt, early on, we talked about some of the crazy research that has been done into how cold spread. But where has the most of uh, research been concentrated at? Well, rhinovirus, um, ah. obviously, because there's 160 different types, and it's the, the, the most common in terms of the way it spreads to people as well. Um, and they did have some early successes. Um, but after those successes, because of the number of serotypes, they realized they wouldn't be able to rely on the traditional route for making a vaccine, which is essentially producing a vaccine for each strain. Mm-hmm. Um, people complain about having to go and get a single flu shot. Imagine if you had to get 160 <laughs> different cold shots. Yeah, exactly. Every few years, you'd look like, you know, a plucked porcupine or something. Um, astonishingly, 
As a result of all of this, according to The Guardian, the last human clinical trials for the cold took place back in 1975. Wow, why aren't cold viruses attractive? Well, that's a complicated story in itself. Um, Look at the Ebola breakout a couple of Mm. years ago. Now, we were able to rush experimental vaccines out in a few months. Um, You know, we're not going to argue the ethics of that today, but there has definitely been a shift towards sort of more chronic diseases like the flu mutations we mentioned before, HIV, Mm. and all these kind of pandemic-type diseases and viruses. So you might think it's for the the glamour because, you know, those are the the headline-grabbing illnesses, but often it's simply about resources. Mm. And that brings brings us back to a kind of recurring Matt's Blaine theme, which is responsibility. When you look at scientific and technological development over the last 100 years – so many of our important discoveries have been publicly funded or they've been made possible by building on the research or the patents that not-for-profit groups have made public. Mm. We've seen a shift away from that approach over the last few decades. There must be some kind of money in this research by you know the big, big drug companies, right? But weirdly, the way vaccines work isn't really attractive to drug companies huh. um, because you get the shot before you're sick. Mm -hmm. So people expect vaccines to be cheap. You're not really incentivized to pay for something to protect from a disease you don't have, unless it's a pandemic type thing that Mm -hmm. threatens your life. By contrast, we're willing to pay billions for stuff to alleviate the symptoms that we can't cure. Um, Palliatives like painkillers and decongestants or natural remedies and vitamins. And that's the kind of money that drug companies like. They like this ongoing repeated business look at drugs like statins they can cut the risk of a stroke or a heart attack and they're profitable because patients take them for decades and decades Mm. so it's a conspiracy by the man to keep us sick no i mean it literally is just economics um that's why i say it's about where we want our research and development to to come from private companies with a profit motive um or national and supranational bodies have very different incentives vaccines can take 10 to 15 years they can take a billion or more dollars to produce and before you make a profit you have to earn that billion dollars back so Mm. you're in a situation where the market has to be worth tens of billions to be attractive to a drug company Mm. if you get 10 or 15 years down that path and it turns out the drug doesn't work then it can literally wipe out your company Mm. what would the process look like are there any examples of companies that have fallen into this trap Loads. I mean, most drugs actually don't make it to to market because um, apparently um, even amongst the drugs that are successful in tests with mice, for example, 80% of those then fail when it transfers to to humans. So Mm. the Mm. failure rate with drug development is very, very high. Um, The Guardian uses an example of uh, a US firm called Novavax, which developed uh, uh, an RSV cold vaccine last year. Um, And they thought RSV was a good bet because even though it's less common than rhinovirus, it can be – it has a huge impact on the the young and the old. So they thought there was probably about a $1 billion opportunity for Novavax in the the US. So worldwide, that would be several billion dollars. But in their phase three trial with elderly patients, it basically – didn't really do anything to prevent infection or very little. So after that news broke, Novavax share prices fell from $8.34 to $1.40. Wow. That, is a, that is a fall of 83%. So it's no wonder that there are so few players in the vaccine market 
amongst the dozens of established and emerging uh, pharmaceutical companies. Still, that's an example from last year. So there must be some success along the way, something to suggest that it's worth carrying on with the work. Well, in a, in a sense, it's actually the successes that have demonstrated how enormous the task is. Um, so I mentioned there had been some early successes with um, rhinovirus, mm. um, I think, back in 1953. And again, this is from Guardian. An epidemiologist called Winston Price, he was working at the Johns Hopkins University in the U.S., uh, and when uh, a group of nurses came down with a cold, he cultured uh, a sample from that to to trial. So he he did a he did a trial with several hundred people, and those that were vaccinated with the um, the vaccine he developed from this virus from his uh, nurses. Um, Turned out they had eight times fewer colds than unvaccinated people. Mm. So media across the world were excited. You know, have we turned a corner? Has the common cold been cured? But his vaccine was only effective against that one strain that he developed. In experiments after that, it did absolutely nothing. And that's what indicated to the scientists of the day that there was more than one rhinovirus out there and they had to keep searching. Mm. And that knowledge progressed? Well, I'm sure that you've heard of the the drug interferon. Um, It's used against some forms of cancer as well as uh, strains of hepatitis and other viruses. It's an interesting drug because it uses chemicals that already exist in the body to Mm. physically block the invading bacteria and stop it from colonizing cells. So what happens is the interferon causes infected cells to basically start screaming that they've been invaded. (laughs) I mean, literally, it's it's, it's like a signal. It's It's a messaging system. And that tips off the surrounding cells to then go into protect mode and your body starts to manufacture its own antiviral treatment. That's why it's, you know, it's, a, it's actually a really mm. um, elegant kind of solution. So in the 1970s, it was hoped that interferon could be used against the cold. And early tests showed promising signs again. But again, taking the information from the Guardian article, um, a review by the Common Cold Unit in the UK in the 80s uncovered that there was a fatal flaw in the logic. Mm. The interferon only works if it's given to the patient at the same time as they get the the virus. But that's not how things work in the real world. You don't realize when you've been infected because we don't know what infects us. We yeah. kissing doesn't work, you know, yeah. having standing naked in a corridor doesn't work. You know, how do you actually catch this thing? Um, so you only know when the symptoms show, and that can be days later. And that time, by that time, it's already way, way too late. The cold has, you know, already entered your mind, your body, and your soul. Is science ever going to beat the cold? It's the same kind of thing as I was saying last week. We shouldn't really focus on the negatives of this. If you want to find solutions to public health problems, then make it clear to the public health or the public representatives that you elect. Because, as I said, a lot of this is about resources. We're not putting huge amounts of resources now into finding a cure for the cold. But research is going on. Um, One of the options going on right now is uh, virus loading. And I don't know if I've used that term Mm. correctly. Um, But what they're looking at is finding the – going back to the the original version, which is finding uh, a vaccine for each strain of the virus. So what they want to do is then combine all of those into a single injection. So you actually have the battle plan for 160 different types in that one shot. But the maximum number of serotypes we've actually managed to combine successfully in the past – 
uh, into one vaccine is only 23. So mm. that jump from 23 to 160 wow. is mm. still going to take an awful lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So perhaps it is going to be a case of looking at the numbers, targeting the strains that cause the largest percentage of the illness. Because, again, even killing off some colds is better than... Killing mm. off no colds, mm. and that's how optimism works. All all this talk about you know injections and and jabs brings back some very recent memories of mine. <laughs> I've been speaking to Culture Pop's Matt Armitage, uh, doing another Matt's planning episode about why we can't cure the common cold. BFM eighty nine point nine. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM eighty nine point nine. The business. Station.